Hello beautiful humans, I'm Jyoti and you are listening to The People's History, the podcast where we talk to people. Today we are back with Cliff Jurgen from Jerusalem. Hey Cliff! Hey Jyoti, how you doing? I'm good. So yeah, last episode you were telling us about your, how you went on job to a journalist office and what we know is that within a few days you were in the middle of Intifada with a baby. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yeah. um, yes, that was a little crazy. Um, and then, of course, the Intifada went on for a fairly long period of time. <clears throat> Since thinking about it, uh, yesterday, two days ago, I was talking to somebody, and I had been, I was walking home from work, and I was crossing a highway, and I heard a huge number of sirens going off and like my heart stopped for a minute and then I was it was I saw it was the prime minister's convoy coming to uh going to his office everyone's probably get these like long convoys with sirens and stuff but going through the second intifada I was so used to you know kind of you know ambulances mean there's been a terrorist attack and you know you were in this in this thing where buses I was living in Jerusalem and you have buses blowing up. Um, you know, it seemed to be constant. Sure, it wasn't, but that's kind of how it felt. And I remember my boss said to me, I used to, I used to, what I used to do, I used to take a bus into work and I would walk home or vice versa. And she told me, I don't want you taking buses anymore. I will pay from the office money. I'll pay for you to take a cab. Um, and I refused. I said, no, I'm not going to stop taking buses. I'm not going to let other people tell me you know, if I'm taking a bus or I'm taking a cab or something like that, I'm taking buses. And, but it was, uh, it was a crazy time. I know people, you know, they wouldn't let their kids go on buses. And it was, it was really just difficult. It was very difficult. And, uh, and I re- so we went on and I remember the time I was, uh, in, I was in near downtown. I had to, my wife was having, um, memorial for her mother. Her mother passed away and uh, Jewish tradition is like someone's death. You sort of do like a, a memorial to them. Somebody will religious subject because Jews always have to have a little, little something to eat. Um, and I to bring from downtown I was supposed to bring cakes or something like that. I don't remember exactly. And I was walking downtown and all of a sudden I saw these policemen running past me with their guns and so I kind of went into journalist mode and started like running after them, see what was going on. And all of a sudden I heard boom, 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 shots being fired. And I realized, you know, this might not be the smartest thing in the world. And then I heard of a, like a submachine gun. And I dove into a, a, a coffee shop that was, that was nearby and realized that even though I was in the coffee shop, I was standing in front of a glass window so I like mm. got down to the floor and then just then my wife called me and she's like where are you and I said I said there's a terrorist attack downtown she goes I'm really waiting for you to bring the cakes I'm like um, <laughs> the terrorist attack here then you know there's gunfire outside she's like well does that mean you're going to be late <laughs> it's like well, it depends on when they stop shooting, you know, when they stop shooting. Like, I, I mean, she just kind of hadn't processed what was going on. And so I was like, well, when they stop yeah. shooting, I'll come yeah, up. Yeah. 
And uh, she called she called me back like 10 minutes later. She goes, "Are you all right?" Oh my god, I just realized. <laughs> but it was yeah, so uh and then it was another I remember after so the craziest that got was after um operation well, there's operation defensive shield after a major terrorist attack in the city of uh Netanya. So it was a Passover Seder. I remember we were at our Passover Seder. Passover is a um, it's sort of the celebration of Jewish freedom, the exodus from Egypt. Um, it is, you know, the, the large groups of people gathered together to, uh, to celebrate, usually families, extended families. Uh, we were with very good friends of ours. And, and now on, on Jewish, and on, uh, so there was somebody there who wasn't religious and we were at the Seder and he turned to me and he said, and, and he said, I don't mind, but you know, I've been looking at my phone and uh, there was a big terrorist attack. It's really bad in the time. And there was, some, I think 30 people were killed, 29 or 30 people were killed. And then after that, the Prime Minister of Time, Eric Sharon, uh, first of all, launched this Operation Defensive Shield, which is where they basically went into the Palestinian, Palestinian cities. Um, and it was a very difficult struggle. There were a lot of Palestinian casualties, Israeli casualties, and that's also when the decision was made to build the separation barrier, uh, sometimes called the apartheid wall or the, the fence or every, you know, a million different names for it, but the proper and best name is the separation barrier. And that's when the decision was made because Ariel Sharon had always opposed the building of any kind of separation or, or barrier or wall. And so we flew in, the, uh, the newspapers are working for, they flew in like four correspondents. So I was trying to coordinate all four correspondents and gather material and it was just, it was intense. It was amazing work, um, but it was, it, it was very intense. And I actually went down to Gaza at one point because we didn't have anyone to go to Gaza. We needed to interview somebody from the Hamas. And uh, you know, all Palestinian. And which year was this? Pardon? And which year was all this going on? This is like 2000. So this, this was 2002. Okay, 2002, and you went to Gaza, yeah. Yeah. So I went to Gaza. It was actually under control of the Palestinian Authority at the time. Okay. So we had somebody called a fix a translator who would who like made the appointments and took me around and did all the translation for. So he took me and first went to interview people from the Palestinian Authority. And I was talking to them and I asked them questions about Hamas. And when we left, he said, he said it was fine, except one thing, you keep saying Hamas with that, with an Israeli H instead of an American H. And he said, when you talk to the Hamas people, don't do that. Because <laughs> they'll know you're Israeli. <laughs> so when oh. I, mean, I I was, interview, I, I was interviewing Mahmoud Azahar, who was one of the real hardliners in Hamas. And so I was like, every time I'd have to say the organizations, I would, you know, I would be like, well, I was thinking, what about Hummus? What does Hummus think about? <laughs> oh, and did you really say Hummus or did you say Hamas? I said Hummus. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he was going, dumb American. <laughs> uh, 
And but, he uh, didn't correct you or he didn't take any issue or anything? No, no. I don't think he would have made an issue anyway. I don't think that at that time okay. it was it was a little bit different. Look, now also there wasn't like I, I don't think there was as much fear of like kidnapping uh, an Israeli or anything like that. Now there now there would be for sure. Now if you know if there I, I think you'd be much more dangerous for an Israeli trying Israelis are not allowed by law to go to Gaza and it would be dangerous for an Israeli to go. They would kidnap them for sure. So you just went ahead, interviewed him, and you came back? Came back, day, wrote so, up the interview. you like spend and the night? I didn't spend the night. I didn't spend the night. I uh, I just did the interview okay. and came back and, uh, and wrote it up. And just it was basically a, a solid month of just like work all the time. It's really just completely crazy. But it was, you know... You know, it's I hate to say, but there's a certain you know, certain high that you get from from that kind of pressure and that kind of work. So, do you miss it? And sort of, I, I actually, I became eventually kind of became kind of disillusioned with uh, journalism. Uh, what happened? I I started getting bit because I was mostly being an assistant. I wasn't really writing and I wasn't really learning how to write, unfortunately. Um, and uh, so I wasn't really growing. And I, so I, and what I ended up doing is there was an opportunity to do a tour, the tour guide course, which I could do while doing work. So I was only working half time. So I started doing thing that I enjoy, one of the things I really enjoyed about my job was kind of showing people around and introducing them to Israel and getting to know Israeli history. And the tour guide course here is, is a two-year program, which is really the equivalent of getting a master's degree. Uh, and you know, and all. Hey Cliff, so you're telling us that you took a tourism course of two years, which was the equal, equivalent of a master's degree and it allowed you to show the people around and to show them your country, Israel. Right. So, yeah. I mean, that was, that was really, so I ended up, uh, so I tried uh, tour guiding for a while, a job which I absolutely, completely, totally love, but it's uh, a difficult, it's a difficult question and I'm not the best at marketing myself. Um, so financially, it wasn't as rewarding as I'd hoped. And uh, then a friend of mine who was still in high tech called me and said and asked me if I could uh, do some work with him. And I joined him in a company called Fourier, which was basically doing science education. The, the company produced their own like dedicated tablet computer for schools that included all of these sensors, temperature sensors, humidity sensors, in order to do scientific experiments. And so I uh, <clears throat> worked in content there. I was responsible for basically all the writing in the entire company, all the English language writing in the, in the company. And it was boarding. Um, I really, I like education. I think science education is very important. And it was, it was really interesting work. And unfortunately, it was another company that overextended itself. Oh. And uh, so they went out of business. <laughs> and this Fourier, and, the name uh, that... Yeah. 
yeah, you can continue. So yeah, so uh, no, Fourier Fourier is named after uh, a French mathematician. The Fourier series. Why? Right. Yeah. yeah exactly, exactly. Yeah, the one that's responsible for all those series. <laughs> <laughs> But he didn't have it. He did wasn't involved in the company. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. <laughs> wow. But yeah, well named. And so I, I actually went guide, back to guiding for a little bit. Um, and it was just kind of like, okay, I'll work as much as I can work. And I started actually working an interesting job at the Western Wall Tunnels. Um, the Western Walls, of course, the, it's often called the last remnant of the, of the Jewish temple, the second Jewish temple, which isn't exactly accurate, but it does date from its kind of the retaining wall of the second Jewish temple. Uh, and it's uh, considered the, one of the holiest sites in Judaism, or the second holiest site in Judaism, a traditional place where Jews pray. And on the side of the, of the Western Wall, there are actually a series of tunnels that go under the area called the Muslim Quarter, where you can see kind of a, you know, if you have the, if anyone, if you Google Western Wall, you'll see the Western Wall that is visible to anyone you go and there's a large prayer But then you can actually mm. walk along that wall underneath the houses of the old city. And you can see the extension of the wall. And the Western Walls actually go all the way to the end of the Western Wall. And you come out at actually the Via Della Rosa, which is the traditional place where Jesus walked before his execution. So this wall is like the subterranean part of the over the surface wall. And it goes all the way along Correct. the Muslim quarters to Via Della Rosa. Correct, correct. And it's a great opportunity to meet. It was really great because got, I got to meet people from all over the world and talk to them and kind of, you know, tell them my stories about, about Israel, which, as you can tell from the length of this podcast, I, I like doing. Yeah. And uh, so it was very enjoyable. But then I got another offer from a high tech company, which was, which was really nice. And I, again, I really, you know, there are a lot of nice things about working in high tech. So uh, right now, that's what I'm doing, is uh, working with high-tech companies. Wow, that that's is funny, amazing. My, the, last, the, uh, the last group that I guided, the last organized group that I guided was actually a group of Christians from India. Wow, that's fascinating. They were an amazing group. Mm. And you took them for like one full day or for like four hours? No, this I, I actually was with them for um, almost a week. Wow! So they will—they just went like from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, to Tiberias, and everything. We went. Yeah, we went to the we went to the Sea of Galilee, the holy sites of the Sea of Galilee, Nazareth. Um, then we went. Then we were in Jerusalem, and then yeah, Bethlehem. Yeah, it was a. Yeah, it was, a, it was a serious tour, and they were a, they were a really interesting group. I, I really enjoyed them a lot. They uh, their singing was absolutely beautiful. And it, was, it was a group, so they were Christians who were living in Mumbai, but they were all wow. originally from like another town or something, like Kerala. 
Uh, maybe, I don't, I don't remember, but I thought it was just really interesting that they were all originally from a different place and it all moved to Mumbai. They're, they're just so well, like in Israel, it's such a small country and in yeah. India, just a group of people who were living in Mumbai who happened to come from a different place. Congregation. Wow. That's like so fascinating. I'm going to try and figure out something about it. So yeah, Cliff, so like you said, your wife sent you for that small excursion to get the stuff and there was the terror attack at that time that you mentioned. So that time when the Intifada started. Yeah, yeah. Were like yes. all the people like mobilized? Was the reserve mobilized and large percentage of the citizenry were asked to move to the security sector of the national system, the government? No. The only mobilization was in that that there was a you know a short period of time, relatively short, like a month period, when they had that Operation Defensive Shield. When they went into the Palestinian cities, there was something of a mobilization, but it's it's really like for for by the time I came to Israel, there was a, a real change in terms of like what like a mobilization means. Like it, it was in the, in the, you know, in the 1967 war, one of the things that caused the 1967 war was the fact that when Egypt moved their army into the Sinai Peninsula, Israel had mobilized its army. And when Israel mobilized its army, the entire country shut down. Like, like there was nobody, like people couldn't, there were no, nobody to drive buses, nobody to harvest them. And they had every, every, all the males were in the army. Whereas I've never been in a situation where the army was mobilized and you actually felt it. You know, like you might know like one person was mobilized or something like that, but generally, you know, it's sort of the younger, like they'll mobilize some of the younger people or something like that. Because having large amounts of people doesn't really do you much good in most circumstances, especially the second Intifada when you know, it was it was terrorist attacks and it really didn't matter if you had, you know, two divisions or you had five divisions. It wasn't really a matter of that. It was really a matter of having good intelligence and stuff. So when the first Intifada took its toll and it just went off on its own or like what brought an end to it? So, so this is so the first Intifada, I didn't speak about the first Intifada. The first Intifada was actually before that. That was in the late 80s, early 90s. Ah, oh, I'm really sorry. So the Intifada you spoke was the second Intifada. So yeah, the second right, so, Intifada. So this, yeah, the second Intifada eventually did sort of just peter out. It just became, you know, there were terror. We go in and really this Operation Defensive Shield was kind of a turning point. Because that was the, you know, the Israeli army went in and there was a lot less freedom of action. Plus the, there are arguments over whether the separation barrier um, contributed to the end of the second Intifada. There are some people who will point to the fact that after the second, the separation barrier was built, uh, the number of suicide bombings basically dropped almost nothing. Um, other people will say, well, the Palestinians kind of got tired of the struggle. This wasn't really doing many good and stopped doing so this entire security barrier so it's, it was there there is an argument 
Yeah, so this entire security barrier, it was built, the entire security barrier, the wall, the security wall, the barrier. It, it wasn't entirely built. And that's like people, people who are, who say the security barrier didn't really help is, you know, they, they point out to the fact that it wasn't completed all that quickly. Okay. But the fact of the matter was they did actually catch people like trying to infiltrate via the gates or over the wall or something like that. So there were really arguments on both sides. And before this barrier was even started, uh, people from the other side, as in the Palestinians living in one of the PA control areas, they could freely move into Israel, rest of Israel and go back. So up until, up until the um, Intifada, uh, there was it was completely free movement uh, between Israel and uh, and the Palestinian territories. Uh, with the with the first Intifada in the 80s and 90s, then there started to be become barriers, and then after actually after the Oslo Accord became you know a little bit more you know they became even stricter, and the you know eventually became stricter and stricter. In theory, you know there'd be there'd be um, uh, checkpoints at the entry areas into Israel, but it was not, but there wasn't, it was really hard to, to stop people because, you know, not everyone had to come along the roads. Mm. <laughs> you could come, you know, over the hills or, or whatever. It was mm. really, it was still pretty open. Formally, it was not, but in actual fact, it wasn't. I mean, even today, it's not that difficult for Palestinians to get over, but uh, it's, you know, somewhat difficult. Back then, it was very easy. So back then, would Israelis also go into the Palestinian territories just to explore? Would they go? Would they venture out? They they go for shopping. Wow! So did you ever have an opportunity? Did you get better deals? Pardon me. You had to get better deals. A lot of, a lot of times, the prices were lower in the West Bank, so people would go shopping in the West Bank. Wow, that's fascinating. And did you ever have an opportunity to go to the Palestinian territories before the Second Intifada? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember one of the most amazing things, one of most of the most amazing sights that I saw was actually um, after I mean, we, we would drive to the West Bank all the time. My wife reported in the West Bank all the time. And then they had the um, there these when they signed the Oslo Accords before the signing of the Oslo Accords between the Israeli government and the Palestinian Liberation Organization it was illegal to fly Palestinian flags to the West Bank. And so, uh, like, I remember, there was somebody had written graffiti, they put a Palestinian flag, you'd make Palestinians wash it out and stuff. And so we're dri we were driving through the West Bank and hundreds of uh, Palestinian flags, like flying out the windows. Like when they signed the Oslo Accords, like the day they signed the Oslo Accords, I was with my wife, she was at reporting. And I don't know why I was I wasn't working there. What I don't know what the story was, but we went together, and it just I just saw all these Palestinian flags there, and people like dancing and laughing, and I, I was like, the feeling of optimism I had was unbelievable. I was like, oh my gosh, we're gonna have peace here. It's amazing to be peace, and they're so happy, and you know, it doesn't bother me at all. They can be happy. That's fine. And uh, you know. We know the end. The ending didn't turn out that all that optimistic, but for mm. that one day, <laughs> I was really filled with optimism. Wow! And 
back then when you used to travel on your regular routines before the Oslo kicked in. So you would venture out, you would talk and you would... Did you explore a lot of West Bank back then? Um, not so much, just because, I mean, I'm not... Uh, this wasn't all, all that much of interest to me. Like, I didn't, I didn't mm. feel any, like some people are very, uh, you know, they, they're interested, they want to build a relationship. Mm. I was not so, my, my wife or something. She was out there all the time doing reporting, um, talking to people, socializing someone. I mean, she was, she was friendly. I'd go with her to socialize also sometimes. Mm. Um, you know, so. And the flags incident that you said, that suddenly on the day of Oslo, you saw Palestinian flags on all the windows and everything. Which city was this? I don't remember. I remember we, we were basically driving through the West Bank. So we weren't in one particular mm. city. I mean, villages. You're driving through okay. a bunch of different villages. Mm. And throughout this podcast, I heard a lot about you. Why? Why don't you tell us something about like, how did you two meet? <laughs> and how did this <laughs> happen? So, um, so ha- we met. I'm trying to think. Oh, yeah. So I had, I was single, obviously. I had a roommate who I'd known for as, from, as a small boy also. We'd grown up together. And his sister and brother-in-law were friendly with uh, Linda. And Your wife. So my wife, Linda, right. And so when they came to visit us, they wanted to invite Linda. So I said, fine, no problem. So we invited Linda to come over. And she came over and she was, at the time, she didn't have a very good sense of humor. She was she was sort of left-wing, very kind of, uh, you know, that's not funny, you can't joke about that kind of person. And so I saw that as a great challenge and just basically spent the entire time in front of her. Uh, which she did not like at all. And she hated my guts. So, you know, our this uh, our friend said, "Oh, you guys got to get married." And she was like, "Oh my God, I'd rather die." <laughs> so she and she was also I mean, this period of time she'd been interviewed for a book, and she said, "I'm never having children because instead I'm going to bring peace in the Middle East." You know. And so they, when they they left, they came back again, and they went to her house for a meal, and so she um, felt obligated to invite me over, and all that I would be alone and know how to cook it's i'm a much better cook than she is <laughs> oh. so she invited me and she didn't know and this back then she didn't know it she didn't know it okay something so, worked out but regarding information <laughs> what went and what didn't go <laughs> she didn't have her intelligence then no no i've got one intelligence was, as an in information intelligence right yeah, the yeah, intelligence yeah, exactly. failure and that part helped out <laughs> so I went over and it was just as bad. She still hated me. And uh-huh. but over the years, we um, we were in the same like group of friends. So we were sort of like connected, you know, tangentially. And we'd run into each other. Uh, these friends eventually moved to Israel. They and they invited us for Shabbat together once. Uh, without telling her they were inviting me too, and they didn't tell me, but I didn't really care because <laughs> I 
didn't, you know, it didn't bother me. I didn't hate her or anything like that. I enjoyed teasing her. But uh, we went down and she spent the entire time complaining about how there were no good men around. And I was like, okay. So <laughs> over the course of uh, we kind of were on our own. I when I went out, I'd mentioned the, that I was engaged to somebody who made me change my name, but the wedding didn't work out. I was actually engaged to two women, and neither time it worked out. So I might say it actually, we didn't end up getting married. And then, you know, eventually, because we were in the same circle, we started coming into contact more. And, you know, she had kind of mellowed out a little bit. I had mellowed out a little bit. And we became friendly. And then we became very good friends. We were like best friends. We were always hanging out. In fact, people would call me at her apartment to try to set me up with other women. And eventually, we were just excited. I don't know how it happened. We started going out. And then she asked me to marry her. <laughs> and did, do you think that changed something in terms of the course of your life, the course you took? Do you think your marriage changed? Oh, sure. Course yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, my life. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't imagine what my life would be like if I, if I hadn't been married, if I hadn't married Linda. As I was going to say, that, did you ever see the movie When Harry Met Sally? I'm still yet to see it. There are two movies that I've been always told. Harry Met Sally and My 51st Dates. The one with Sandler, 51st Dates. Oh, that's a, good, that's a good one also. Yeah, I've been told to see these two movies all the time and I'm like, okay, I will, I will, I will, I will. And I think I procrastinate so much with my life regarding everything. I even procrastinate when it comes to watching movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, for, the, for those of, of your listeners who've watched Harry my story is like when Harry met Sally I would say it's when, when Harry met Godzilla <laughs> I got to watch the movie tonight <laughs> you have to you have to watch the great movie yeah <laughs> and once you got married and was it that then you decided to settle down in Jerusalem instead of any other city in Israel or it was back in your, it was in the back of your head that you're going to settle down in Jerusalem. Yeah, I had always I'd always been kind of a Jerusalem boy. I had played around with the idea of maybe moving to one of these kibbutz or one of these collective farms. That kind of life did attract me somewhat, but I just really loved Jerusalem for a number of reasons. One is it's a, it's an amazing place. Also culturally I sort of am still very American, although I've been living here for a long time, and there's a very large American community here, uh, which is kind of nice. And uh, yeah, just a, a lot of advantages here, a lot of opportunities also that I might not get outside of Jerusalem in terms of, you know, you get to Tel Aviv, either Tel Aviv or Jerusalem, you know, especially if you're working in high tech, it's really hard to live outside of the center. And when you, did your parents also move with you to Israel or they stayed back in the United States? My parents stayed back in the United States and I also have a sister who stayed in the United States. So she was the one who, you know, was in charge of, when my parents got to the age when they needed, you know, a little bit of help, um, my would help out. Although um, my parents were basically, my mom unfortunately passed away like two years ago, my dad before then about five years ago. 
but sort of up until the end, like they never really needed a tremendous amount of assistance. They were they you know they were pretty independent, uh, like I say, right up to the end. And they lived in Washington D.C. throughout this time. Yeah, in the suburb. And they would visit Israel once in a while, Jerusalem. So they they would they came once a year until probably they were in their eighties or something like that. And then they then they sort of or maybe their eighties. When they hit eighty, I think they kind of like started coming a little less often. Um, I remember my dad's last visit was actually when my my youngest son had a bar mitzvah, and uh, my dad was sick. And he got, you know, he was somewhat better, and the doctor kind of gave him the okay to come for the for the bar mitzvah. And he came for the bar mitzvah. He got sick while he was here, um, and then he went back and he passed. That, and it was, you know, I talked to my mom, saying, you know, that I felt kind of these feelings of guilt that he, you know, maybe he shouldn't have come. And she said to me, you know what, it was. You know, he really wanted to come so much, and you know, like if he hadn't come, he'd lived another month. Like he wouldn't want that. He would come and pass away a month earlier and see his son. You know, bar mitzvah, and you know, it's just so important. And thank God he was able to, you know, make it to the synagogue and everything. And uh, it was uh, it was a tough time, but he was, you know, he was able to see his youngest son bar mitzvah, which was very important. His younger grandson mm-hmm. bar mitzvah. And your parents, uh, as in, you said, that they used to keep Shabbat and they used to keep all the rituals and everything. So no, the they, rituals... they kept they kept they kept kosher. They did not keep Shabbat. Mm-hmm. They we would okay. have so again we would have Friday night dinner as a family. Like we had that family dinner on Friday, night, but we were not Sabbath observers. Mm-hmm. So they kept kosher, but didn't keep Shabbat. Correct. But they used to have the Shabbat dinner. And all the cultural aspects of it and everything. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we got it. Wow. Hello. Yeah, you're saying you went to synagogue yeah. on Friday oh, we, night. Oh, we went to synagogue Friday night. Okay. And as in, if I may ask, so how is even if I'm to how do I say it somehow remove this aspect of uh, practicing? To a certain extent, or not, if I'm to discount this, then how is life, our uh, Jewish life, United States, different from Jewish life in Israel? Being in Israel, the way I explain it to people, is that each country has a certain, and the rhythm here in Israel is the rhythm of what I practice as a Jew. So, for instance, when I'm in America and it's Saturday morning and I walk outside, it's just a regular kandet. Whereas here, when I walk outside and it's Saturday morning, like you know that it is the Sabbath because of you know there's less traffic and just the attitude and the rhythm of the country. And when my holidays, when my Jewish holidays come up, it's the holidays of the whole country. Whereas when I'm in the United States. Like who knows? It's a Jewish holiday. Okay, you know, you know, it's a drop in the bucket. Everyone else is acting, you know, is normal. They're, they're not talking about the holiday on the radio. Whereas when I get up on the on the eve of a holiday, 
I listen to the radio, they're talking about the holiday, they're talking about recipes that people have on the holidays, that sort of thing. You feel natural. You don't feel like you are kind of an outside imposition onto a different culture. Wow, that was pretty educative for me to put into perspective for a person to be in Israel and to be in the United States. And when you have lived in Israel, apart from Jerusalem, you must have lived in a few other cities as well, right? As in maybe for a year or yep. maybe a few months? I, well, the, I did spend like six months living on a, living on a very small um, a community, like farming community, like working as a volunteer there. But rest of it is all Jerusalem for living. Uh, rest of it is all Jerusalem, yeah. Okay. And so you, are, you must be pretty happy because you stayed all the time in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem must be something pretty close to your heart and you must be loving it, right? I absolutely love it. I think this is a, it's a great place to live. It is a great place to raise children. I uh, look at, you know, look, it's, you know, it's hard to compare, but, you know, and I, when I think about, you know, what I see of kind of children, especially like in America, compared to like American children, I think we have in many ways a lot to be proud of here. I think we have a lot to struggle for also. We have a lot of challenges ahead of us, but, you know, in terms of, you know, the responsibility that kids take here, you know, 18 years old, you know, my kids are going in the army and taking on tremendous responsibility. Uh, my daughter was uh, was a forward observer on the Lebanese border, directing troops and directing airplanes and directing helicopters, while uh, you know these American kids are kind of out there and getting drunk. <laughs> not, to, not to be too wow. like stereotypical, wow. but I'm, I'm being a little exaggerated. But but yeah, it's, uh, it, it is a, tr- it's a tremendous thing. Pardon. Yeah, but I'm saying that what you said now, right up, kind of puts the things into perspective. It makes it so much easier for a listener to actually understand what you are saying. This example, it was kind of, it put the, it then, it just didn't say that it's coal. It took the coal and you lit it on fire and showed us how it burns. <laughs> yeah, because it was and I would also cool. add to that. I was going to, I would add to that, that I also tell people that living in Israel, I really see the importance of uh, people taking a year or two years off lives between high school and college. I don't care if it's the army or going into their schools and teaching kids or working. You, at, you have to, you grew up in a country, you benefited from a country and you need year I think it's such an important lesson, it's such a valuable thing for people. And not only that, that you're giving back to the country, but you also, though that year, that two years, lets you understand that you are part of something bigger and that the entire world doesn't just revolve around you, that you are part of a network of people who are all going to support themselves and, and you shouldn't be the weak link in that network. So it kind of so IDF per se, as an army and as an institution, it also helps people to kind of meet each other and it kind of tells everyone that, okay, today you are part of a big family that is Israel and IDF is perhaps one of the places where they can actually live it and experience it. 
yes, I, I think it's a, it's a tremendous it's a tremendous thing, and I, I tell people from America, uh, I don't know where your audience is from, but mm. it's just it seems to me like when I talk about healthcare, I say you know people in Israel, you know, you're capitalists, not capitalists, but most people are, you know, you have capitalism, but like no one here would ever in their life think to abandon someone else like that they wouldn't get health care because they don't have enough money. Like your connection with other people is just too strong to allow for that. It's, the society is so atomized. People are so much like individuals that, you know, that's helping other people. You know, there's no concept of, you know, basic rights, you know, you should get health care just because you're a person, you're living in the country, and, you know, you may be weaker now, but maybe tomorrow you'll be strong and you'll be supporting someone else. Hmm, that kind of tells, wow, I'm, uh, that really fascinated me because it's something that's been seen in most part of the, parts of the world. There is, there are these two worlds that are kind of coming close and moving away from each other because these two worlds exist. And one can literally see these two things in front of eyes, but yeah, Israel and US, two countries where we can definitely see different. And Cliff, when you must be traveling a lot abroad as well as an Israeli. I, I must be, I'm sorry, what was that? Uh, you must be traveling outside Israel uh, a lot. And when you yeah, travel outside, yeah. when you speak, are you identified as an American or an Israeli? So we, um, and when people hear us, they think we're Americans. Hmm. Hello. Hello. Could you repeat? Yeah. Cliff. Oh, sure. sure. Uh, when people hear us speak English, they assume we're Americans. But then they usually ask us where we're from Jerusalem. Mm. And does it make any difference to them? Um, it really depends. Look, some people are, I, I, I don't, I can't remember we've ever gotten like a really bad reaction. I'm Yeah, Cliff, so you're telling about your experiences Hi. when you travel outside and that you didn't have any onward incident or anything ever. But no, I, 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 did you hear the story about Morocco? Uh, what exactly? I so, don't think uh, we were traveling with Linda in Morocco mm. and uh, I was very hesitant. Like I just kind of in Morocco, I didn't want to start, you know, forwarding information that we're from Israel. So we were in a, but Linda was much more uh, straight forthcoming with that stuff. And we were at a restaurant and we, and we got into a discussion with the waiter and he asked where we were from. And she said, uh, in Jerusalem Arabic. And uh, they got into not an argument, like a little discussion. And then they kind of like were like, they said, ah, let's not talk about politics. <laughs> mm. <laughs> we're having a nice meal, we'll, we'll drop the politics. Mm. People are very excited. Um, my wife has traveled much more than me. I mean, she went on a cruise with the, with our two youngest children to um, Asia and Africa. 
and was in uh, Ghana, and she told people it was in Jerusalem, and they got very excited that they were meeting someone from Jerusalem. So uh, we actually got a lot of positive reactions from it. And this, uh, this was about Linda or the trip to Ghana? Pardon? Uh, so who went to Ghana? That was Linda, yeah. That was, so uh, Linda did something called Semester at Sea, which is an American program where college students go on a ship um, and take classes on the ship and go to visit different countries around the world. Mm. So this particular voyage, she went and took our two youngest children mm. to, they went to Japan, China, Vietnam, uh, Burma, Myanmar, uh, India, uh, Africa, South Africa, Ghana, Morocco, and they ended up in London. Wow. And Cliff, if I may ask you one of the very important questions now, like you, you are living in Israel with a family and you have spent like the most considerable amount of time of your entire life in Israel. How much of the politics that's ongoing in the region and the domestic politics within Israel, how much of it does it affect or influence the everyday life of an individual? Or if I may say, how much of it affects you? So uh, it doesn't really affect me that I feel uh, in a in any concrete way. My my big concern is for the future. I think that my generation. I, I'm very disappointed. My generation in particular. I feel like we're a little short-sighted, and it can be a little selfish at times. And I think that in general, people, it's hard for people to think, uh, you know, kind of in, you know, long-term ways. I also feel that um, I do have some issues with, you know, how the country's attitude toward the Palestinians, uh, not that they are completely innocent of, of anything and have no, uh, have, you know, no say in their, in their plight. I think that they, you know, have made mistakes as a people, so to speak. But I feel like, you know, people aren't really looking ahead and saying, you know, what is this country going to look like in 30 years and 20 years, whatever. Um, so I, and in terms of the world, I feel like my generation is not really concerned about the world that we're leaving to our children and what it's going to be like for them in 20, 30 years. And I, you know, so that's been kind of one of my big disappointments in, in general, in world politics. Mm, and if we may put it more, how do I say it? If I am to be specific about the region of the Middle East. Yeah. Where Israel is. So, so I think, look, Israel is, um, the issue is the status quo for Israel at this point in time is actually pretty good. I mean, you you see it you, you you see it in the you know the economy is doing quite nicely. Uh, diplomatically, Israel is actually less isolated than it ever was before. Mm. So the status quo seems you know from all for all intents and purposes at this point seems to be doing very well. What will happen, what it will be like in 20 years, you know, it's, that's a discussion that we have that I, you know, kind of make arguments with my friends that 
I just don't see the status quo as tenable for another 20 years. And that I'd rather start taking care of things now while the situation's good rather than wait till it develops into a crisis. But I think humans being humans, we need it to develop into a crisis first. Yeah, but which crisis? For our audiences in general. Look, eventually. So eventually, and the fact of the matter is that Israel now is controlling the lives of something like 2 million Palestinians living in the West Bank, and there are another 2 million Palestinians in Gaza uh, who have kind of a different status or sort of independent, whatever. But how long are you going to, you know, be able to control people who have kind of, who don't have full citizenship, who have full rights? who are living in your country, I mean, you can make that argument that, you know, it's a temporary measure, you know, makes sense. But if you're going to say this is going to be the permanent long-term solution, I'm skeptical whether that's going to hold, that's going to last for decades to come or whether, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, things are really going to start to unravel. And like we these days we hear a lot about the deal of the century that's kind of coming do you think it kind of is going to affect this in a plus or a minus way as in do you think it somehow helps israel or somehow helps get the both parties come closer to a solution i we you know we don't have of course we don't have the details of it from what mm. from if if the reports that we've heard about it are correct, I don't think it's going to be, it's it's not going to do anything to help bring Palestinians and Israelis together. I think that, look, if you if you agree with the um, kind of this hard line thing that, you know, we're just never going to have peace with the Palestinians and we have to kind of, you know, get what we can out of, out of, out of, the, out of the situation, it's, uh, you know, it'll be, for those people, it's going to be good for Israel. Um, I think that the American government's going to kind of give Israel whatever it wants. Uh, not, you know, not whatever it wants, but they're going to take the Israeli position. And again, if we if, it, if the reports are like we like we believe, and if you you know look, I could be wrong, and maybe this status quo will be able to go on forever and ever, and I'll have been proven wrong, and will go for Israel. Hmm. And when it comes to the domestic politics of Israel, does it affect the people of Israel in any adverse way? Or it is the way it goes and everything comes back in a circle and things go on in a, a bit of a turbulent, but in a regulated way. What is your take on that? So domestically, I think, I think Israel is facing a real time bomb that has nothing to do with the Palestinians or anything like that. And that is, if we go back to what I was talking about, about the ultra-Orthodox Jews, part of what happens, a, a lot of the ultra-Orthodox Jews don't work. They, they refuse to serve in the army because they go to the army. They, they can't join the workforce, so they're not working. And they to work because they don't learn English, they don't learn math. So they're really kind of unfit for the, for the labor, and they're becoming a larger and larger and larger proportion of society and basically to put it very crudely they you know they live off welfare their their job is getting welfare payments and 
So you're ha- so you're getting in a situation where a smaller and smaller proportion of working people are supporting a larger and larger proportion who aren't working, and that and 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 people who aren't working are having large families. Therefore, the percentage their percentage is going up, and that is a real time bomb. Wow. No, what happened at the end of the day with that, that? And it's one of those things. It's very, you know, you can you take a big punch, punch, a big chunk of the budget, and you and you cover up this problem and cover up the problem. But you know, your budget's only going to cover up the problem for a time period of time. Oh, so Cliff, that kind of tells us so much about Israel and your life. Is there anything you would like to tell us, or let us? Know a bit about? I, I, you know, with all the problems with out, this is in place. I think everyone who is able to to get here, I think, should get here. Kind of see things firsthand. There are so many ways to come here and, and travel and see the land. Under, I know it's a, I know it's expensive, but. It hmm. really is worthwhile, and there's a whole like rainbow things that you can see. That you know, we didn't talk about the beautiful nature sites we have here, of course, the historical sites, and for people who, you know, who Judaism, Christianity, and Islam have religious significance or are interested in that sort of thing, this is you know the heart of it. You can really firsthand and really understand for people who are interested in the Bible. You can come here. You can really, in order to understand the Bible, you have to come here and see it kind of with your own eyes where these things happen to gain a real in-depth knowledge of it. So I'd say come visit and uh, and see us for Friday night dinner. We uh, we have a pretty open house here. Wow! Thank you so much, Cliff, and especially for this offer and to all our listeners who are listening. And I'm thankful to you for your time and your explanations and your wonderful stories. But before we go, uh, before we leave, what are you? Would you like to recommend some movies or books and places to visit? So, um, so books. So I, re- I recommend people read it's an old book, but don't be put off by you young whippersnappers. Um, the <laughs> Source by James Michener. I highly recommend that book. Um, In terms of, if you're interested in kind of learning about Israeli history, there are a number of you know kind of large volumes that'll cover the whole Israeli history. Um, another book that I like to recommend about modern Israeli history, though I will, it's the person who wrote it is very much um, left hand, left wing, you know, politically. Um, his name is Gershom Gorenberg. It's called Accidental Empire. It's specifically about settlements, but I think it's a, it's an excellent book, very well researched. Um, something that's more like middle of the road is I'm trying to name it. I think it's My Promised Land. Ah, uh, it's um, a movie. Which really it. It's a book. No, no, this is a book. This is also a book. This is a book. Um, in terms of movies, uh, one movie that one one of the most touching. I was talking to somebody. One of those touching movies. I ever saw um, was actually it's an older movie from the 1950s by Danny Kaye. I don't even, I don't even know where you could see it. I've been looking for it myself. It's called The Juggler, and it's about a concentration camp survivor 
who comes to Israel at the very beginning of the state. And it's one of the most moving movies I've ever seen. I highly recommend it to anyone. Um, and uh, let's see, for in terms of another, another good Israeli movie is called, um, it's called Ricochets, which is also a movie, I think, actually made by the Israeli army, but it's a dramatic movie about soldiers in Lebanon, which I think is a really good movie. And I'm sure there are others that I'm missing. <laughs> Always. <laughs> They're not coming into my mind right now. And are there any nice places in Israel that you would recommend to our listeners? Or for that matter, any oh, place yes. in the world? So one of, one of my favorite places to see is a place called Tel Dan, which is in northern Israel. It's actually the headwaters of one of the largest springs in the Middle East. And it is uh, kind of on the, on the Syrian border, but it's also got a um, got very ancient sites. In the, in the Bible, it will often describe the land of Israel uh, from, from Dan to Beersheba, which is from Dan to the city of Dan, the way to Beersheba in the south. So it was kind of the northern border of biblical Israel. And you have range there from going back all the way to um, to like pre uh, to pre-Israelite times. You have um, you have the old one of the oldest arched entry, oldest arched gateways in the Middle East, and that's actually where they found the fir- the only written evidence that we have of the existence of the House of David outside the Bible. And this place is all the way up north on the Golan Heights? It's right below the Golan Heights. Okay. And it's called Tel Dan. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Thank you so much, Cliff. Thank you so much. With pleasure. Anything else you want to tell the audience or anything out of your mind? Any advice or anything? Um, any advice? Well, so my, my, my advice would be that, um, that you should, uh, all right, I'll tell you a, a little, I'll, I'll tell you a little story. It'll take mm. a couple minutes, but. Mm. Take all the I time. I was once in a class. <laughs> I was once in a class and uh, somebody was described, we were talking about prophecy. And in Jewish tradition, uh, the ultimate in prophecy takes place in the Bible when Moses says to God, he says, I want to see you face to face. And God says to him, nobody can see my face and live, but you can see my back. And God passes in front of Moses and Moses sees his back and that's considered the ultimate in prophecy. The question is, what does that mean to see God's back? I mean, God's not a person. He's in the front, on the back. What, what, what does that mean? Well, if you picture it, let's say you're seeing, you want, you're seeing the back of another person. When you see the back of another person, you're actually seeing things from their perspective. So the ultimate in prophecy is that you see the world from God's perspective. And so an important lesson here is you should always try and see the world from God's perspective and from other people's perspective. Imagine yourself in the back of that other person and try and see how they see the world. Wow. 
it's like when you first said look at god's back my abijah's uh, eyes are just went at the back but when you explain the perspective part okay it's much more it's it goes beyond that aspect uh thank you so much cliff thank you so much once again thank you it's great talking yeah. to you yeah and to all our listeners you have heard so much from cliff and well this is it from us then have a great night have a great day <laughs> depends on where you are and then with it i would like to say goodbye once again bye bye cliff thank you bye bye yeah